Well, with a view to God's help, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read there from the letter of James, and in chapter 3. The page, you'll remember, was 1851, 1851. And uh, reading again in verse 6, where we read that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. So the tongue is a fire. Now, uh, next Lord's Day, uh, God willing, uh, in our study of the Ten Commandments, we'll move on to the Third Commandment, which you remember tells us not to take the name of the Lord of God in vain. That commandment has an awful lot to do, of course, with how we speak. And I thought it might be helpful in preparation for a closer study of that commandment uh, to consider this famous passage which considers the tongue. The tongue, of course, as the organ that primarily produces our speech. Now, this is a passage, and in this connection it's not unique, but this is a passage which is better known than observed. In other words, we could say that the passage is well known, but perhaps not so well kept. And uh, some people, perhaps all of us, are liable to excuse ourselves by taking a particular kind of expression in it. For example, in verse 8, where we're told that no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. We can take a statement of that and say, oh, well, if, if no man can tame the tongue, then I suppose it doesn't really matter all that much if it's let loose now and again. It's not that great a sin. Um, and it's easy to take that approach really with the whole of God's law. Oh, well, who's perfect? None of us are perfect, so it doesn't really matter if we fall short of God's law. But there's two problems with that, well, at least two. The first problem is that when the scripture says here that no man can tame the tongue, it's not saying that the tongue can't be tamed. Far from it. In fact, James' point in the whole passage is that God can tame the tongue. That is the point. If you were to say that no man can tame the tongue, well, what's the point of telling us to tame it then? Because he has just told us to tame it. He's described that in various ways throughout the passage and the importance of taming the tongue. His point here is that the natural man can't tame it. The natural man can tame wild animals, but it can't tame the tongue, or he can't tame, or she can't tame the tongue. But God, of course, can. And the Christian man and Christian woman are to be marked out by having tongues tamed by God. So that's the first problem. It's a misunderstanding of what James is actually saying. The second problem with that attitude is that it belies a, a flawed approach to the law of God. 
and a failure to understand what the role of God's law actually is. Now, uh, there are many ways in which people misunderstand the law of God. People make it a means of salvation, which it can't be. On the other extreme, people just ignore it altogether as being irrelevant to the gospel, which of course is an equal and opposite sin. The fact of the matter is that God has saved us to be holy. It's vital that we remember that. I, I remember saying it just a, a few weeks back, and I tried to labour the point. I probably laboured it in the wrong way, but it needs labouring. God has saved us to be holy. Sanctification is far greater than justification. Justification is the means. Sanctification is the end. Justification is so great for us because it conceived a way of doing the impossible, which is to make us righteous before God. But that enables us then to be like God and to be in his family, to share his likeness. In other words, salvation is not about deliverance from hell. It's about conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a means to that end. So you can never say about the law of God, oh, well, it's a, it's a secondary thing somehow or other. The critical thing is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is just a fundamental misunderstanding and a serious misunderstanding of the whole of the law of God. You can't try to be holy to be saved. That, that can't work. But at the same time, you are saved to be holy. God's purpose in saving you is to make you like himself. To put you among his children. So of course, <laughs> holiness is something that is being formed and developed in every true Christian. It's what marks them out practically. I mean, only God knows the faith in the heart. But what marks out Christians practically is their conformity to God's standard in word and in conduct. That is how we recognize one another. Now, it's not an infallible recognition, but nonetheless, that's how we recognize each other. We will be like Christ, increasingly so, in what we say and in what we do. Because, of course, as the Bible tells us, without holiness, no man can see the Lord. There are two statements, I think, that we always need to take together, and we shouldn't divorce them. Theologically, God has joined them together, and theologically, let not man put them asunder. The two are, without faith, it is impossible to please him, and without holiness, no man shall see him. So we always take these two together. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's the starting point. But without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. If you keep these two statements together in your mind, you won't go far wrong. You can't go far wrong, at least if you keep them prayerfully and meditatively in your mind. Now, when it comes to our speech, the, the consequences of our speech are far, far greater than probably any of us actually realize. If we think about what the Bible says about speech, we probably will fail to take in a fraction of what it actually has to say about speech. I think the, 
The single greatest uh, statement regarding the importance of it comes from the Lord in the passage that we just read, where he said that by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now that's quite a staggering statement. Quite a staggering statement. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That reminds us that both our words and our works reveal our justification. They don't constitute it, but they reveal it. So let's say, for example, it's not for example, I mean, it's a fact, we will all be brought before the judgment seat of God, that is true. The books will be opened. These books contain a record of the words that we have spoken in this life and the works that we have done. These are solemn books. Uh, we're so used today to an infinite amount of information being encoded in tiny little bits of silicon. God has a total record of all our thoughts, words and deeds. Now our words and deeds, when they are brought out, will be found to match the Book of Life. The Book of Life is a register of those who are spiritually living, the elect of God. They are in the book of life. Their words and their works correspond to that. Uh, no one will be found with his name in the book of life whose speech was evil and whose works were evil. Nobody. Neither will any be found outside the book of life whose words were good and whose life was good. Nobody. There is an absolute correspondence between our speech and our works on the one hand and our registration in the book of life on the other. And if you say, does that mean our words and works are perfect? No. What it means is that they are consistent with Christian life. That's simply what it means. Your works and words will be shown to have been suffused with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the life changing work of Christ so that your heart will be shown to be good even though sin was attached <coughs> that's what I mean by your words you will be justified you, your words will demonstrate a consistency with your enrollment in the book of life a, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things there's a simplicity to the Lord's words. There's a, a wonderful, wise uh, simplicity and transparency to the Lord's words. Let's just take them as they are. That a good man is good because he has good treasure in his heart and therefore out of the mouth good things. An evil man has evil treasure, that alone in his heart, and he brings forth evil things. So by your words you'll be justified, by your words you will be condemned. On a practical level, on a very practical level, much of what may be wrong in our Christian life may be due to our speech. <coughs> much of what's wrong in our life and in our circumstances, for example, problems in your marriage, or a divided family, or a fractured Christian friendship uh, with someone with whom you had to have, with whom you had a very close Christian friendship, or even a terrible church or a divided church, or whatever. 
a large part of that may have to do with a misuse of the tongue. Simply that. In other words, if you or perhaps another had been quiet, well, let's, let's drop another. Let's just drop another. Uh, it takes two to fight. So let's just focus on ourselves. Had we kept our tongues, perhaps things would not be as they are. You know as well as I do that once words are spoken, it is very hard to retrieve a situation. Words, of course, are very powerful things. Whether these words are written, which of course gives them more permanence, uh, or spoken. In fact, I have to revise that, really. Written words are, in many respects, no more permanent than spoken words. Everything I say today is recorded. That's it. It's as well being written, for good or ill. There's a permanency to words. And, of course, there's an old proverb that tells us that the pen is mightier than the sword. I think it's fair to say, too, that the spoken word is mightier than the sword. There's, a, there's an old uh, saying that we sometimes teach children, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me. Uh, that, of course, isn't a biblical proverb. And neither, for that matter, is it very true, really. Uh, I certainly understand what it's getting at, and I'm sure you understand what it's getting at, too. And normally, when we teach that to our children, we try and we're trying to build up our, our resilience in them against things like name-calling and things of that kind. But the fact of the matter is that it's, it's not really true at all. Names can most certainly hurt. And it stands to reason that something that is aimed at your soul is going to hurt you far more than something that's aimed at your body. I mean, the most, the most that I could do to your body is kill you. But of course, in, in regard to your soul, there's an infinitely worse judgment that can come. The Lord said to us, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after they kill the body, they have no more that they can do. Fear him who has power to cast both body and soul into death. I could inflict far more pain on your soul than I could on your body. And you too on mine. And that's why the tongue is so strong. There's nothing you can do with your hands and feet that can hurt the person beside you in comparison with your tongue. Nothing. Your tongue is able to hurt and to injure them spiritually with huge injury, enormous hurt. That's really the reason I, I read from the Savior's prayer there in Psalm 69. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed the expression or, or at least noticed it in this way when he said, reproach hath broke my heart. Now, um, the Lord had lots of sufferings on the cross. And, uh, of course, the, the physical sufferings were great. But what broke his heart on the cross? Reproach. Reproach hath broke my heart. Insults that were aimed at him in connection with his spiritual life and godliness of conduct. These things were far more painful than the nails that were in his hands or in his feet. And that's why, similarly, we need to remember the power of this tongue. If you, if you take the word words, switch the S from the end to the beginning, you have a sword. The tongue is actually shaped like a woman, two-edged sword. That's why we're told of the Lord Jesus Christ when he appeared in the book of the Revelation that his tongue 
that he had a two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. That's because of the power of the judgment of his word. But sadly, it's a reminder to us that Old Tongue has power too to judge people like that. It has power to condemn. It has power to destroy as well as power to build up. Now, that just takes me to this again, really, by way of introduction. And it's a sad, a sad thing that the tongue uh, should be as destructive as that. And, and that a passage like this is required in connection with the tongue. The tongue, after all, was not made to be destructive but constructive. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.29 to make sure that no corrupt word comes out of our mouth but what is needful for edification and for parting grace, imparting grace to the ear. There's a contrast between what corrodes on the one hand and what edifies on the other. Now edification is connected to the word edifice it's connected to building people up. He says that, that your tongue should build people up in holiness and godlessness, not bring them down. And motive comes in a lot there. I'll, I'll say something about that in a moment. <coughs> so put away, Paul says, evil speaking from among you. And in fact, when you think about the tongue, when the Bible speaks about it, it, it doesn't exclusively speak about it in this narrow sense, but it also recalls as to what the primary and highest use of the tongue actually is, uh, which is to glorify God, uh, not even just to edify each other, but to glorify God. In fact, there's a strange phenomenon you sometimes find in the book of Psalms where the word uh, glory is put for the word tongue. that my glory will sing praise unto thee. The meaning there is the tongue, because the tongue is our glory. The tongue is our glory in the sense that it expresses what's in the heart. I mean, there is nothing that can reveal what's in here to you except this. I can say what I think, what I feel. Now, if the tongue is the highest part of your body in that respect, because it can give expression to what's inside, it stands to reason that the greatest use we can put into is to praise God with it. To glorify God. In prayer, we can address him with words. In praise, my tongue shall sing of your judgments. It's not a wonderful thing to be able to do. Uh, in Psalm 119, the psalmist says that your precepts are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. So when he speaks of himself as going to the church of God, he sings God's precepts, which is an interesting and additional reason to be singing psalms, which are full of commandments. Uh, My tongue shall sing of your judgments. And even in our day-to-day speech, the highest use to which we can put our tongue is to be speaking about God, My tongue shall speak of your righteousness all the day long. Now how sad then if the reality is just somehow different from that. If we have not tamed the tongue, if we have allowed it to have a life of its own, and if it has become the situation that from the same mouth mysteriously proceeds blessing and cursing, 
How come a Christian mouth can be characterized like that? My brethren, he says, these things ought not to be so. Does native not even tell you that, that a spring can't produce fresh water and bitter from the same opening? And a fig tree can't bear olives, neither can a grapevine bear fruits. No spring yields both salt water and fresh, so your tongue can't be good and evil. Now, in connection with all that, you'll notice that James makes several statements about the tongue, and let's try and take them to heart today, because I would guess that this is a problem that maybe all of us, to some extent or another, share. Some may be seriously so. And as I've said so often, forget your neighbour here and uh, just look at yourself. Me too. The first statement that he makes is that the tongue by nature is on fire. I don't mean it's the first statement, but in some ways the first in point of logic in verse 6, that the tongue is a fire. That, you could say, is its default condition. By nature, it's just burning there all the time in your mouth. As though it's, it's ready to spark something. That's its default condition. And we've got to kind of recognise that. And maybe some people more than others. I mean, some people are, you know, sanguine, some are phlegmatic, uh, and uh, some, some are melancholic, uh, some are choleric. There are different types of temperament. There are some who are very, very quick and very ready to speak. When you are, remember that this is a fire in here. It's a fire by nature. Uh, and in, unless you've sought the grace of God and his overruling mercy and the spiritual discipline of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's liable to come out bad. Because it is on fire. It's set on fire. Just smoldering all the time inside. Worse than smoldering, it's actually raging inside all the time. It's its default condition. And that fire, sadly, as James tells us, is a fire that's hellish. At the beginning of verse 6 he says that the tongue is a fire and at the end of verse 6 he says that it is set on fire by hell. So the fire that's raging inside your tongue as it were, is, is as I said a hellish fire. By that I mean it is always ready to speak evil. In fact at the beginning of verse 6 he doesn't just say that the tongue is a fire he says that it's actually a world of iniquity. It's like it's got a cosmos of iniquity inside it. There's nothing it's not ready to say. No sin that it's not ready to speak. If it's just let, let go of and if it has free reign. That's what we carry in our mouths. And if it contains a world of sin in it, it's no surprise that it can do untold damage. A world of sin in my tongue. Well, it can create a world of iniquity out there course it can. And sadly, the tongue spreads its fire in verse 6. Because after telling us at the beginning of the verse that it is a fire and a whole world of iniquity, he tells us that the tongue is so set among our members, that's our bodily members, it's so placed that it defiles the whole body, your hands and feet, what you do, it sets on fire the whole course of nature 
and it is itself set on fire by hell. Now, there's an interesting thing here because the, the dominant thought isn't that you set fire to others, which is, of course, true. I mean, once, once you let this fire out, it goes into other people's nature and it sets them off and it starts them burning and raging. But while that's true, that's not the dominant thought in James's mind here. It's not primarily what he's telling us at all. What he's telling us here is that it sets our own nature on fire and it defiles our whole body, usually in such a way that it leads to violence of one kind or another or bad conduct of one kind or another. Now, I think we need to pause for a little there because in a way that's a spiritual and psychological surprise. And what I mean by that is that we would expect it to be the other way around. We normally think that the tongue uh, doesn't make us worse, that it simply just reveals what's on the inside. In other words, we become bad on the inside and the tongue shows it. And after all, the Lord says that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is true, yes. That is true. It's the tongue that shows what's in here. Absolutely so. Who can deny that? I mean, I quoted it earlier, and I read it earlier, that an evil man from the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. Because, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Even Socrates said that about 400 years before the, uh, the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, speak so I can see your soul. Speak so I can see your soul. That's true. But while that is true, so is this. That a non-bridled tongue makes you worse. It inflames your own soul and it leads you to do worse. <coughs> that is something that we probably don't think of enough. Enough. It, your tongue is so set upon you in, amongst your members that it invades the whole body and it defiles the whole body. He compares it to the rudder of a ship. Notice here the tongue is not being steered. The tongue is steering. Notice that. The tongue is steering. It's like the rudder that moves the whole ship in a certain direction. He says the tongue is like the bit that you put in the horse's mouth. Notice here, the tongue is not the horse. The, the tongue represents the bit that actually guides the horse. That's the surprise. We think we guide the tongue. But James says yes, but he says it works the other way as well because the tongue takes control of you. As you allow it, you suddenly say what perhaps you meant not quite to say. Or something that if you look back at, you wouldn't say. But once you said it, you started to get worse. It set you on fire. Um, that's why sometimes when two people are uh, maybe arguing and uh, it gets worse and worse, something is then said and uh, the person says, are you listening to yourself? Are you hearing yourself? And the reason why that's so is because the tongue has already um, gained control over you. By, by allowing yourself to say this, it's actually made you worse 
you've moved on and you've said something more and you've said something more. Now, I'll admit that these things were already in the heart, but the problem is they would not have gained control. They, they would not have done the damage had you not started to give leeway to the tongue. Once it gained control, it turned the ship in an unexpected direction. And so many relationships are broken, so many fellowships are broken because the tongue was not checked. Had the tongue been checked, it would never have done that. If you had stayed quiet, you would have stayed self-controlled. Now, um, <clears throat> that bit in the horse's mouth is an interesting one. So, so is the rudder of the ship. I mean, who would think that the tongue was that powerful in your life? The, fa- the fact of the matter is that the, that the proper use of the tongue, as well as revealing self-control, is actually vital to attain it. If, if you can't control your tongue, you will never control yourself. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. If your tongue's out of control, nothing else is. Augustine famously said that a person who learned to control his appetite would much easily learn to control everything else in his life. So what a truth in that too. But it's far more biblical to say that a person who learns to control their tongue is more likely to be in control of everything else in their life. There's nothing as hard to control as the tongue. But mastery of the tongue indicates that there's mastery of other things too. Self-controlled and disciplined in your life. Now, one of the reasons James says these things is because he's confronting people who are desiring to become teachers in the church. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Let not many of you, he says, become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter (coughs) judgment. We stumble in many things, but he says, if one does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Now, it's very important that anyone who teaches the word of God, and of course these things are always difficult uh, for me to say because... I am one of them, but in any case, these things always need to be said. Um, It's always important that those who are teachers in the church are able to evidence self-control in their speech as well as in their life. And if there's an abandonment of control in speech, you can be sure that lurking underneath it, there's a general lack of self-control too. But one of the reasons speech is so important, and it's very difficult to, to observe this carefully, because you'll notice, for example, in the New Testament, that Paul says to Timothy, he says that you must be able, he says when you're preaching the word of God, you must be able to convict and to rebuke and to exhort. Convict and rebuke and exhort. Now, to convict and rebuke, especially, are not easy things to do especially when you're trying to retain control of your tongue, which takes you, of course, to the spirit. And, you know, um, although it's not my main point, in some respects it is my main point, because the spirit 
in which you are has so much to do with this. Let's take, for example, if you are trying to rebuke or to um, convict someone. Now, how vital is it? How vital is it that your desire for that person is a good one, fundamentally? It doesn't even matter how bad the person is. That your desire at the end of the day is that that person be reclaimed, <coughs> whether they are a Christian going astray or a backsliding person of whom you doubt even whether they ever really knew the Lord first or what, irrespective of all that, that your purpose and your design towards that person you're rebuking is a good one. That they be brought back to the Lord or put right in their walk and conduct. Now, if that desire is right, that, that will govern your tongue, certainly. It will govern your tongue. If that desire is not right, your tongue is going to go away with you. And who knows where that's going to go. And can you honestly say that? That whenever you say something to someone, that, that your desire for that person was for their good. Now, of course, we all know that it's easy to kid ourselves in that matter. And you let off steam. And you say what you wanted to say to that person. And you go home and you say to yourself, well, that had to be said. <coughs> oh, well, maybe it did. But maybe not by you, right there. And then, in that way, and with that temper. Because as we said last week, righteous anger is being righteous at the right thing, at the right time, and to the right degree. And only the spirit can control that. A man's spirit who is controlled under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. That's why when Paul says to Timothy, when he says to him to convict and to rebuke and exhort, he also says this. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, he says, A servant of the Lord, and and although this is true, especially, of course, of of a minister like Timothy was, it's true of us all, think about it, Think about it even when you're disciplining your child or talking to your son or your daughter. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. You know what you're going to say, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may come to know the truth. Notice that's the motive here, you see. That's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for, that perhaps God will grant them repentance, that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. I've always found it a useful thing to think of somebody who's in opposition to you as being the devil's captive, rather than your enemy. I'm not saying I can always think of it like that, but I've always found it a helpful thing when I do think about it like that, if you think of that person as having been taken captive by the devil to do his will, rather than your opponent, once, once you think of people like that, the devil working behind them, in them and through them, makes it easy. It just makes it easy for you to have your spirit in the right place. But God, perhaps, may grant them repentance that they may come to know the truth. That's so, a, a wonderful statement. It doesn't mean that you can't sometimes be quite cutting. You know what came to me in connection with this uh, earlier on uh, this week was how Elijah uh, used sarcasm. Now, 
Sarcasm comes from a couple of Greek words which mean to tear the flesh. And um, it's sometimes called the lowest form of wit. And usually it's very destructive. And most sarcastic people are not sarcastic for the best reasons. But it does have its place. But to, to use sarcasm lawfully in a godly manner uh, is very difficult. And that's maybe why it's best avoided. Paul certainly used it to the Corinthians. But the, the example that I thought of was um, when Elijah was confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, we're told that they were leaping around the altar and, they, and they, were, they were dancing there saying, Baal, hear us, but there was no voice and no one answered. Now, you, on an occasion like this where, where you have uh, false prophets in government, uh, they are actually in civil government as well as the religious government of the land, they are leading a country astray, they're leading a country to hell, there is a place for forthright speech, for strong and for forthright speech. And in fact, Elijah unleashes the, the sword of sarcasm and he begins to wield it. Famously, he says, cry louder, he says. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's busy. Uh, or he might be on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and he just needs to be awakened. Uh, most Hebrew scholars say that one of these expressions actually means that he may be in the toilet. You'll notice the, the sarcasm exposing the foolishness and the vanity of these things. We have to be very careful of these things because, again, it's easy just to speak and to write like that and say, well, they deserve that or whatever. Careful. Careful, careful with the term. So he reminds them of two things. First of all, he reminds them, James reminds them, of the relationship between the tongue and holiness. In verse 2 of our chapter here, chapter 3 in James and verse 2, we stumble in many things, but if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Now I mentioned earlier that some people misunderstand that as though it means, well, you know, who can be perfect? But this word perfect is the word that often appears in the Old Testament and would be better translated complete. We're told that Noah was a perfect man before God. Does that mean he was sinless? No, it means that he was complete. We're told that Job was a perfect man before God. Does that mean he was sinless? No, it means he was complete. Or it means that he was finished. Finished. Uh, don't know if you remember that young women particularly used to go to a finishing school. Uh, there would be primary, secondary education. There was a finishing school. A finishing school was where a young woman was um, prepared to take her place in society. She was just taught the, the finer things about relationships, how to deal with people, to do certain things or whatever. Finish them. Make them complete and ready. That's the idea of the word here. Every time you come across the word perfect, you need to say, oh, well, nobody's perfect, so that's it. I can just ignore that. It means complete. I'm sure I made the comparison with you before, but in, in Hosea, um, Ephraim is called a cake not turned. Cake cooked on one side, not cooked on the other. 
That's a reference to some people who, who may be okay in this area and that area, but, but that area and that area are so raw that, I mean, nobody can touch it. Oh, it's okay, this person's in church and this person's at a prayer meeting, but look at how, look at, look at how she speaks to her husband or, or look at how her husband deals with her. Or, it's okay, this, this person's fine in church, but have you encountered them in the office? Have you tried to conclude a business transaction with that person? It's a cake, not turn. God doesn't want us to be like that. Is that preaching perfection? No, it's just preaching completion. Is there such a thing anymore in our Christianity as a mature man and woman of Christ? People who still have their faults and failings, all right, but nonetheless balanced in speech and conduct, show a maturity in how they deal with people and interact with each other so that even Christians who are beginning on the path can look up and say oh well they have been with the Lord they've grown with the Lord they've grown in faithfulness they've grown in integrity they've grown in truthfulness they are the people I desire to follow is that not what the writer to the Hebrews said when he was bringing before them certain examples of faith, and he said to them, Whose faith follow? Now, we all know that the person we are ultimately called to follow is the Lord. Because as I referred to in my prayer, not only did he die for us, but we're told explicitly by James that he left us a pattern that we should follow in his steps. So he's not just someone who secured our justification, he is someone who left us a pattern for sanctification. That we should study his life and conduct. So that we would begin to speak as he spoke. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. To speak as he spoke, and we learn to live as he lived. Paul himself could say, be ye followers of me as I am of Christ. Now you who have been a Christian, I'm not going to say a year here. I'm not going to say five years I won't even say 20. Let me say for 30 years. Or for 40 years. Is it true of you. That somebody could look at you and say. Well that is something to attain. I'm not saying that's perfect. But that's something to attain. Or is it still the case that people look at us and say. Ooh, not sure about the word that he speaks. I'm not sure about his actions. I'm not sure about his conduct. And of course, such and such a person will say, well, hey, do you expect him to be perfect? No, just reasonably consistent, that's all. That's what the Lord would have us to be. And a man, he says, who is able to bridle his tongue is a complete man who can then bridle his whole body. As I mentioned earlier, that's not easy. In fact, James tells us that it's easier to tame the animal kingdom. He, he says in verse 7 that every kind of beast and bird, even including reptiles and creatures of the sea, have been tamed by mankind. It's not necessary to say from that that we are, that we are able to tame every creature. He just says every kind of creature. It's able to take every kind of creature and bring them into subjection to himself. But he says, no man can tame the tongue. Why not? Because it's on fire. It's full of sin. 
You can't tame what's sinful yourself. Do you think you can control it yourself? Do you think you can control your hands and your feet? You certainly can't control your tongue. It's the last part of your body that you're going to be able to control. But once you control it, you've controlled the rest. And that's why he tells those of them who are going to be teachers of the word that they must be controlled in speech. As well, he says, as that you must know that we will receive a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. Whatever our privileges in life, the judgment is always stricter. The more God gives, the more God requires. That's true of those who are teachers of the word. Friends, I'm, I'm not perfect either. In fact, I'm not complete. But I shudder really at what's said in pulpits today. Honestly, what's said during sermons and uh, the clowning around, the careless use of God's name, the endless references to self and achievements and just the jocular approach and all the stuff. And I, I just think to myself, is anybody taking these things seriously? Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment at, the, at, at God's throne of judgment. So in connection with that, actually, that <clears throat> I made a reference last week to Moses. You remember when he came down from the mountain and he broke the, the, the tablets of stone. And we saw it as a righteous anger. God didn't rebuke him for it. It was, a, it was an illustration of the breach of the law. But I did refer to the fact that he had lost his temper at the, at the rock uh, when he was told to speak to the rock. And uh, instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it. And we're told that he spoke to the people and he called them rebels. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a, here's where the spirit comes in, you see, because strictly speaking, there was a rebelliousness in them, obviously. But it was still not right to call them that. He, he, he let himself out. He lost control of his tongue. And, well spoke unadvisedly with his lips. That's how, that's how the psalmist puts it. It's quite a, an understatement in a way, but he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. And of course he lost his place in the land of thrones. That doesn't mean, of course, that he lost his place in heaven. And by the way, that, that teaches us that not all the Israelites who fell in the wilderness that didn't make it to glory. <coughs> If you, if you were to say that all the Israelites who died in the wilderness uh, didn't make it to glory, that means that everybody over the age of 21, except Caleb and Joshua, didn't make it to glory. But it's a sign of losing serious privileges and missing a blessing. Missing a blessing. Missing a blessing is a real thing. And you can put God's blessings past yourself. You can put God's best past yourself. You can live with second bests and third bests because you spoke unadvisedly with your lips. Maybe we put a lot past ourselves because we speak unadvisedly with our lips. Just last of all, how do you tame it then? Well, to begin at the beginning, you can't. Only God can. Your first call is to pray about your tongue. And in that you're following David's example. Keep of my lips the door. Psalm 141. We're going to sing it in a moment. 
In other words, not just the general prayer that helps to build consistent Christian conduct in men and women, not just that, but the special prayer that targets the tongue. Especially if your tongue is a problem. Target your tongue. I mean, our, our prayers for sanctification are often far too general. Sanctify me or make me holy. Um, all right, but are you really concerned about it? Well, identify something. Identify something even over the last year that is bringing you into a wrong place. And target it. Target it with your prayer. That thing. Set a watch on the door of my lips. David's prayer. The second thing, and I'm closing with this really, is just to meditate on a series of passages that simply address the tongue. Now all I'm going to do in closing here is I'm just going to quote a few of them. And so I don't want you to rummage through the Bible at the moment because it will just simply become distracting for you. But just hear them as I quote them. I'm going to take the first one and the last one from James himself. The first one is from James chapter 1 and verse 19. Well, it's easy for you to look at that if you want. James 1.19 where he says, My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to write. Quick to hear, slow to speak. As the Puritans said, they were full of quaint and pithy sayings. Two ears, one mouth. Think about it. Be twice as ready to listen as you are to speak. We've all got a lot to learn. A lot to learn, maybe more than to share. So just remember that. Be quick to listen, but be slow to speak. The book that's most closely related to James is the book of Proverbs, and it has an awful lot to say about the tongue. For example, in Proverbs 12, 13, we're told that the wicked is ensnared by the sins of his lips. So his lips are getting him into trouble all the time. His words, his lies, causing him trouble. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue will keep his soul from evil. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue will keep his soul from evil. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose speech is like a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Notice that again is going towards motive. You, you want to edify, you want to build up, you want to reclaim, you want to restore, you want to save. But there are some who speak like the piercings of a sword. Proverbs 18, 7. A fool's lips are the snare of his own soul. The Apostle Paul tells us to make sure that our speech is seasoned with salt. Good gospel salt. Just scattered over everything that you say. That's a sermon in itself. But I'll leave you with James again. Just go back to this, actually. Chapter 1 and verse 26. And this is a sobering reminder that what I'm saying is not optional or just a secondary issue. Verse 26, if anyone amongst you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. 
If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, <coughs> this one's religion is useless. Let's pray that our tongues would not get ourselves and others into trouble. Let's stand to pray. <coughs> O Lord, teach us to be uh, more careful in what we say, to be more considered, for it is well nigh impossible to pull back on what is said. And uh, we pray that we would follow the example of our Lord himself, who often kept silent when he was being provoked into speech. And uh, we pray to jealously guard the relationships that we enjoy, lest we sever them and uh, lose those who perhaps have been close to us in the Lord. Set a watch upon my mouth and keep of my lips the door and incline us not to the wicked things that we should abhor. Do us good, we pray, and especially help us to bear these things in mind as we come to consider the importance of not taking the name of our Lord in vain. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. And let's close by singing those words that uh, I referred to a couple of times. Psalm 141. In verse 2 he says, Let my prayer be as incense directed in thine eyes, and the uplifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And set, Lord, a watch before my mouth, and keep of my lips the door. We'll sing the opening four stanzas of the psalm to God's praise. Standing to sing.
Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uh, be with you all. Amen.